Good morning, church. All right. Happy to be with you guys. I hope you'll take advantage of some of the opportunities this week. The class starting tomorrow night on Christology and Soteriology is going to be a wonderful eight-week course. Com groups, 51 spots. Uh, The Wednesday night class out in Santa Barbara on how to interpret scripture. Just great opportunities right now for you guys to get equipped. So take advantage of that. I really... We really feel that this is just a pivotal season, that God is doing something wonderful in our midst, and we want to be fully engaged in it, fully engaged in what Christ is doing uh, for the furtherance of his purposes and his glory in the coastlands. Amen? Amen. So take advantage of those things. Uh, Let's remember that this message this morning will be seen at our Ventura campus, who we love so much. Let's let them know how much we love them. And with that, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we are continuing, nearing the end of our series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. This is part 7 out of 9. We're going to be talking about the helmet of salvation this morning. Spiritual warfare and the armor of God, part 7, the helmet of salvation. So we're going to read the whole text that we've been studying these several weeks, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, and then we'll talk about the helmet of salvation from verse 17 in particular. I'm reading and teaching from the New American Standard this morning. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is wonderful. We've been so encouraged, Holy Spirit, as you've been teaching us what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We thank you, Father, for the armor that you've provided for us. You've not left us to be easy prey to the enemy, but you have made us through Christ more than conquerors. Thank you that you strengthen us and you protect us in the person and the work of Christ, who is the truth, who is our righteousness, who is our peace, in whom we have faith, and who is our salvation and the hope thereof. And we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you'd make Christ bigger in our hearts and our minds. We confess that sometimes we give the devil too much space in our lives and in our hearts, our thoughts, our minds. And we want to think and pursue Jesus more. Thank you that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. We confess that we think too much about ourselves and too much of ourselves. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be so enamored with Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, that we would decrease and he would gladly increase, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Give us ears to hear your word this morning as it's preached, and please anoint me to do so in a way that brings you much honor, glory, and praise, and is fruitful for your purposes. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, this helmet of salvation, we've been working our way through the armor of God, which is available to the Christian piece by piece, and 
We have before us this morning from verse 17, the helmet of salvation. The helmet during the time of Paul would have been made of either leather or metal, would have just fit snugly on the head there, would have been the last piece of armor that was put onto the warrior before he picked up his sword to go immediately into battle, would have covered the back of his neck, would have come around the front, would have covered his face, and it would have given him a real sense of invincibility, a real sense of being able to charge forward into the opposition in the midst of the battle, knowing that with the helmet on, he could withstand repeated blows from the enemy, that he could stand when the enemy came against him and continue to move forward. Now, Paul here is drawing this imagery from the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we see that God is pictured as a mighty warrior who comes against his enemies, Satan, idolatry, demons, idols, enemy of Israel. God is a warrior who comes against his enemies. And the reason that this armor is called the armor of God is because God is the first one who's pictured figuratively, sort of metaphorically, is putting it on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59 15 through 18 says this. Now the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. It's talking about looking at the land and seeing the wickedness and the lack of justice there. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. God was baffled that there was no one to intercede through prayer and action, laboring on behalf of justice. So God did something about it. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, the armor of God, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. So God is pictured in the book of Isaiah as a victorious warrior who gets the victory. And he does so through these attributes of himself, righteousness, right? Righteousness and strength and power and salvation. He's the only savior. So he goes forward in his character, in his quality, according to his work. That's the same thing the Christian does. That's what it means to put on the armor of God is go forward in the quality, the character and the work of Christ, who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And we've been told in this passage to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand in the evil day. And the more you live, the more you realize there are just some days that are plain evil. There are some days that are good days. There's some days that are just bad days. And there's some days that feel like they were set on fire by hell. And we are enabled to stand firm with the armor of God. We who have been saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ have entered into a battle. The normal state of the Christian is that of battle. There are moments of repose, and of course, our peace is found in Christ. But the moment that through our faith in Christ, we were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, we entered into a real battle. And Satan is our foe. Now, Satan's main target is God. Satan hates God. Satan can't do anything to God. And so Satan comes after that which God loves most. You and me, us, we, God's people, his beloved, his blood-bought bride. See, the, 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 the enemy of Satan is truly God, but we become the target in this warfare. And so life is a battle now. We, belonging to Jesus Christ, have been called to live like Christ. We're told in the book of Ephesians to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Right? We're told to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and hope. We're told, called to be imitators of God. We're called to live in such a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And so the enemy's main scheme is to so confound us, to so mess with our life, to so tempt us and, and, and push us into sin that we've, we, we cease to do that, that we don't live lives that bring glory to God, honor through being obedient, honor to God, imitators, of Christ. This is what the enemy wants to do. And so it's sure that life is a battle. 
And the more faithful by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit you're endeavoring to be to God, the more the battle increases. The more you're desiring to live a life that is on mission, that is about Jesus and his purposes in the world and not just live for yourself, the battle increases. And if you're just a passive, withdrawn Christian who just comes to church once in a while but spends most of your time sitting on the bench, so to speak, Satan doesn't have to do anything to you. You already took yourself out of the gig. But the moment you get serious about holiness, righteousness, mission, and faithfulness to Christ, then you make yourself a real target of the enemy. But we have been given provision by God, the armor of God that we may be able to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, it says over and over, in the ups and the downs of life. And life is just that way, isn't it? Just up and is down. This week, a sweet lady from our fellowship here, Nancy, passed away on Friday and went to be with Jesus. She'd been uh, struggling with cancer for years. Her and my daughter, Daisy, were often in Cottage Hospital at the same time. Pastor Sean and I went to visit her on Thursday, and she just had hours left. And we sat next to her bed. And just, she wasn't conscious. She knew we were there. We just told her about Jesus and how great her salvation was. And that in hours she would be standing blameless with great joy in the presence of her king. And that she didn't have to have any fear because perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. But Christ was punished in our place we might be made the righteousness of God that she could stand before God blameless and holiness with great joy. And there she, she went shortly after into the wonderful presence. And next week or the week after, I don't know, a few days, my wife and I will have a baby girl. And you know... You know, life is like that. There's ups and there's downs. Next week will be my birthday. I'll be turning 42 on Friday. 42. There's ups and there's downs. This week I got... This week, man, for, for no good reason, I got so depressed. You know, sometimes we're depressed because it's something in our diet. Sometimes we're depressed because of some chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's just the schemes of the enemy. I I just got depressed and despondent and irritated and angry for no good reason. My son went on his first mission trip ever this week. He's down in Roatan right now. He left on Friday. And so, you know, life just has its ups and its downs. There's, There's new life and there's death and there's joys and celebrations and there's heartaches and pains and there's depression and joy and adventures and life has ups and downs. But Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. And And Jesus is victorious in all things. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And yet life is a battle. We know that. Life is a battle. And here's what's necessary in a battle. We can persevere in a battle as long as there seems to be hope. As long as there seems to be hope, we can persevere in any sort of battle. As long as there's this sense of maybe it's going to get better. Maybe we're going to pull through. Maybe we're going to make it. As long as there's any inkling of hope, we can persevere in any sort of battle. As long as there's hope. And the helmet of salvation is all about hope. The hope that we have in Christ and the salvation that's been brought to us. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that will show us how the helmet of salvation is hope. It says this, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, speaking to the Christian, that the day would overtake you like a thief, speaking of the day of judgment that's coming. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. 
For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Oh, there's another breastplate. Breastplate of righteousness, faith, and love. It's, it's imagery, right? It's, it's metaphorical language to talk about the person and the work of Christ in our life. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Anytime you see the word hope in the Bible, it speaks about some future reality, something that has already been provided to us in the work of Christ that is coming to us in the finished work of Christ, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining, future tense, obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. The helmet of salvation is speaking of the hope of salvation. That is the future fullness of our salvation. Our salvation unfolds in three tenses. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been saved past tense, have been saved from the penalty of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's good news. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are daily being saved from the power of sin. Can I get an amen? amen? That's good news. So past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, we are daily being saved from the power of sin. But there is a future tense to our salvation. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. There is coming a day when we will no longer suffer under the weight of wickedness in the world, evil in the world, the schemes of the enemy in the world, Christ will come and fully and finally vanquish all and set right all that has gone wrong. There is coming a day, the fullness of our salvation when Christ returns, when these things will no longer be an issue. And we will exchange the helmet meant for battle, for a crown of righteousness in the presence of his glory. So the helmet of salvation now, as we're beginning to think about what it is, has to do with the future fullness of our salvation. Look here at Romans chapter 13 that also brings this out. Do this knowing that the time, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Do you see that future tense of our salvation? He's speaking to Christians here. We've already been saved. We are daily being saved, but in some way, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, than when we were first saved. There is a future fullness that is coming when Christ comes of our salvation. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Speaking of the day of his return. Therefore... Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Oh, there's another armor, the armor of light, armor of God, armor of light, metaphorical language, speak about the person and the work of Christ for the Christian. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its loss. So we see that the helmet of salvation has to do with the future fullness of our salvation. And realizing this future fullness is to have a present effect on the way that we live. In light of Christ coming again, and all that's being brought to us in the world and his work of renewal, we ought to live in a certain way. Because we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We are now children of the light donning the armor of light. So we walk as though in the light, in righteousness. So this future reality has a present effect on the way that we live that mitigates the ways that the enemy can work against us to derail us from faithfully and fruitfully following Jesus. Now let's take a little sneak peek at this future fullness. Let's do this naughty little thing and turn to the back of the book and see how it all ends. Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter 20. It's not really naughty. I was kidding. You can do that. 
going to see how it all ends here. We'll just get a little snapshot. Revelation chapter 20. We'll start in verse 10. Christ has already returned in chapter 19. The millennial kingdom unfolded in the first nine verses of Revelation 20. Now let's look at the end here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's right. Where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's this wonderful saying that goes along with this verse. The next time Satan reminds you of your horrible past, you remind him of his horrible future. (laughs) What do you know about that? You like that? I like that too, buddy. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then here comes the great right throne judgment. Okay, this is where everything that's gone wrong is set right. And I saw a great white throne, verse 11, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The books in the plural... Isaiah 65, Malachi chapter 3, other places are the books of evil deed. Colossians chapter 2, it's called the certificate of debt that was hostile against us. All those things we did, have done, are doing in that book. Those books, in the plural. Mucho books. (laughs) Mucho sin, mucho books. But it says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That's muy feo, no bueno. You don't want to be judged from the things that were written in the books according to your deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, we saw previously the lake of fire was made for Satan, for demons. He goes there, he's tormented. But anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will also go there. How do you get your name written in the book of life? It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's Christ's book. It is those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for them. Those who have put their faith in Jesus will not be judged according to the books, all those deeds. But we will be found righteous in Christ and all of his deeds because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen, as we're heading toward the end, you better know which books God will open on the day of judgment when you stand before the throne. Now look, Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. Just a side note here, that doesn't mean that there won't be surfing. (laughs) No longer any sea is a Jewish idiom for separations between peoples. Okay, we'll all be united surfing together. But because it's a new heaven, it won't be crowded. I'll have Rincon all to myself. Important theological note there. Verse 2. And I saw this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, those things, the first things that passed away. And he who sits on the throne is saying, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, write this down for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Now, the helmet of salvation has to do with these things. The enemy finally and fully being vanquished, thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment being happened, all that is wicked and wrong that we long to see judged, being judged. Those who have put their faith in Christ and so his righteousness has been made theirs, being proved righteous. And everything that has gone wrong in all of creation being made brand new, the renewal of all things and God present in our midst where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death because Christ has fulfilled all the promises of salvation. This, to think on these things, to dwell on these things, to let these future things, eschatological things, these future things affect your present life is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation that protects us from the schemes of the enemy. Now, what's interesting about the grammar in Ephesians chapter 6 in the helmet of salvation is that opposed to the other pieces that we're beckoned to take up and put on, this one is put on us. You see, by the time a soldier got all dressed up and he had the breastplate on and the belt and all these other things and he's holding the shield, he couldn't put the helmet on himself. So someone else would come and place that helmet on his head and then he was ready to go. I'm telling you, Christian, that God himself puts the hope of the fullness of this final salvation on our heads daily as we think upon these truths. It's to be received. When it says take, it's to receive this helmet. Now, what does that do for us? It enables us finally to do what we're called to do, to fight from a place of victory when it comes to spiritual warfare and the schemes of the enemy. Because the victory is sure. We just read the end of the book. The enemy loses. Jesus wins. And we who are his with him. So we fight from a place of victory now. Imagine how that changes the game. Think if you were in a football game and you had somehow traveled into the future and saw that your team wins the game, right? You got in a little time machine and you went to the future and you saw, oh my gosh, we slaughter these guys. This is great. And you go back in time and you're there at kickoff. If you knew you couldn't lose, how would that affect the way that you played the game? Listen, unless you're a total cheese ball, It wouldn't make it so that you're like, oh, well, we can't lose, so I'm just going to ride the pine. I'm going to just sit on the bench. I'm just going to, you know, hang out and not, not break a sweat. No way, dude. When you realize you can't lose, you would fight valiantly. You would have incredible tenacity. You would be without fear. You would take the hardest hits and just get up and say, what? That's nothing. I can't lose. You would put the hardest hits on people. You would run faster, go further, try harder because you knew you couldn't lose. I'm telling you, Christian who's put their faith in Christ, who has risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming again, we cannot lose in Christ Jesus. The battle is real. The battle is fierce. Life has its ups and downs. But as long as there is hope, we can persevere. And we have the helmet of the hope of salvation. We know for sure that in the end, the enemy loses and Jesus wins and we with him. So that ought to change the way that we fight, the way that we live. That ought to mean that we don't give in to the enemy so easily when we're tempted. Man, how gnarly can temptation be? Sometimes it feels like, oh, I, I can't, I, I just got to do it. No, we don't. We know the end of the story. We don't have to give in. How, how radical can sometimes despondency and depression and despair hit us and we just go into this pit and we just feel like, hey, I can't ever get out of this thing. That's not true. We know the end. How often is life so overwhelming, suffering so real that we just feel like it's never going to end. I just want to give up. 
That's not the right attitude. That's not the truth. We know the end of the story. Jesus wins. There is going to be an end and it's really, really good. Therefore, we persevere. We have tenacity in the battle. We don't give in. We don't give up. We stand firm, like our text said. Over and over, stand firm, therefore. You can't lose. In Christ, he wins. Stand firm. Resist in the evil day. Resist the enemy and he'll flee from you. Next time he tries to draw you back into your sordid past, you just push him toward his horrific future. It should change the way that we fight. Have you ever been watching a boxing match? Anybody into boxing here? A little bit? Nobody? Okay, whatever. (laughs) My dad is. He's in the back row. My dad loves boxing. Have you ever watched a boxing match and a guy's winning and he's got the other guy against the ropes? And the other guy's against the ropes and he's just going like this, just getting beat. Just, uh, uh, uh. And he knows it's just a matter of time until he goes down. But the guy who's winning isn't just like going for it. You're like, dude, you got him on the ropes. Go for it now. Now. Take him out now. And it's usually the heavyweights. Right? The heavyweights just slow, just big, heavy. They just get tired easy. And, they're like, uh, and you're like, dude, finish him. You've got him on the ropes. I like the, the little light guys. Because they're just like, (laughs) they just never wear out, right? And they finish them off. Let us lay aside the weight of sin that so easily entangles us. Listen to me, the enemy is on the ropes. Sometimes we're just heavyweights in the realm of sin. And so though he's on the ropes, we don't go in for the finish. We're letting the enemy continue to take ground and stay in the ring and have opposition to us when in reality Christ has already won. And so throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, Hebrews 12, 1 says, that we may run the race with endurance. When we're loaded down with the weight of our sins... Man, it slows us down. What do we do? Breastplate of righteousness. We run, we run to God and Christ for forgiveness and we continually remind ourselves of imputed righteousness, but we run after Christ in faithfulness and live out practical righteousness and it lightens the load. There's a lot of talk in our culture about progressivism and who's progressive. Let me tell you what the idea, I was reading a book on this earlier this week. The essential point of someone who claims to be progressive, and and lots of different people and ideologies claim to be progressive in our culture, right? President Obama would claim to be progressive for his ideologies. But then you might have someone like the conservative movement, the Tea Party, that would claim to be progressive because they see the future not as this way, but as this way. People with certain sexual orientations might claim to be progressive because they see that the future is this way. Other groups over here would claim to be progressive. Here's the idea of progressivism. The essential point of claiming to be progressive is that one owns the future. That the future is progressing toward the position he or she holds. Someone is seen to be progressive and acts progressively when they think that they hold the future. Therefore, they see that all things are eventually going their way. So they're bold about it. Have you noticed some people with just a crazy agenda are incredibly bold about it? Why? Because they're progressive. They see that this is a future. And so their thought is, you can't hold this back. So no matter how alien that that agenda might seem to us, the progressive says, you can't hold it back. This is the way things are going. And so they're always endeavoring to move culture toward what they see to be the future, which they hold. Here's the question for all of culture with regards to every ideology and every group. Here's the question. Who really holds the future? There is only one who owns the future. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the beginning, I am the end, I'm the alpha and the omega. I hold the keys. I am the beginning, I am the end. He is the goal. He is the final fullness. All things were created by him, exist for him. Jesus 
holds the future. Therefore, Christians should be the most progressive humans on earth. We are held by Christ. We belong to Christ who owns the future. Therefore, we actually know because Christ already rose from the dead and so validated any promise he has ever made. We already know where the future is going. It is heading toward the return of Christ to establish his kingdom and glory when the enemy is fully and finally vanquished and the judgment takes place and everything that has gone wrong is made right. We know that's the way it's going. So we are bold in endeavoring to progress the world toward that final thing. We should be the most progressive people in the world. What does that mean? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, when people believe they hold the future, they preach the gospel, whatever it is. Socialism, reform, sexual identity issues. Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. Therefore, we live without fear in the face of opposition. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51, long chapter. Paul writes and says this, First Corinthians 15, 51. There it is. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep was a first century Christian euphemism for die. We won't all die but we shall all be changed, metamorpheo in the Greek, transformed, metamorphosized. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is speaking about when Christ returns for his church. This is talking about the rapture of the church. Christ returns. The dead are raised. Those who have died in Christ are raised and receive their glorified bodies. Sweet Nancy, who just died Friday, is raised bodily for her new body. My little girl, who just died a year ago, her new body raised, imperishable. And we who are alive and remain are changed in an instant, brought into glory these old bodies that are getting funky and nasty. 42, mine's already starting to just... Change, transformed after the pattern of Christ's resurrection. Okay, look what it says in the next verse. Verse 53, for this perishable, meaning your body, your body's like cheese, it's perishable. Mayonnaise. This perishable... (laughs) must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality okay so in the end when Christ returns and we're transformed and the dead in Christ are raised then will come about the saying that is written okay then the whole world will see the fullness of what has already been written in scripture death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, here's how we live in light of this future glory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And there is so much that we will do in this lifetime that is vanity. 
But your toil in the Lord, all that you do for the Lord is never in vain. Therefore, the enemy is on the ropes. Finish the gig. Go full bore after Jesus. Don't be caught with your arms dangling at your side. Don't be caught sitting on the bench when we know Christ's team is going to win. Be in the game. Be fully engaged in following after Jesus and to holiness, righteousness, and mission for his glory. See, this future truth of Christ's coming ought to change the way that we live today. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. We'll see it again. I'm just going to belabor this point for a while. You okay with that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, the mini- look at me for a second, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died, who was raised from the dead, who has ascended into heaven, and who is coming again, and who has sent us into the world to preach the gospel to every living creature. Since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Right? That's what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants us to lose heart. The enemy wants us despondent and apathetic and feeling defeated and overwhelmed. And life is that way sometimes. And life feels that way so frequently. But we already read the end of the book. Since we have this kind of ministry where Jesus actually really truly wins, though life is a battle, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, there's language that reminds us of the belt of truth. This is warfare passage. By the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience That makes us think of the breastplate of righteousness and practical righteousness in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, lowercase g, speaking of Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of glory, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. How gnarly is that? Listen, this is sobering. We all have friends. We all have family members, people that we love who are literally deluded, deceived, blinded by the enemy to the truth of Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying we do not lose heart. Why? Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. There's the shoes. Remember the shoes, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world? And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, the gospel, in earthen vessels, our frail perishable cottage cheese bodies. So that, look, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Why? Why? Because we read the end of the book. We know how it ends. Life is hard, but there is a good finale. Perplexed, but not despairing. Why aren't we despairing? Because we read the the end of the book. We know how it ends. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Why aren't we forsaken? Because Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm coming again for you. Struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why are we not destroyed? Because Christ is ours and we are his. Christ is a victorious king who rules and reigns on high and is bringing all things to consummation and subjection to him. Therefore, as long as there's this inkling of hope, we persevere. We fight with tenacity, valiance. We don't say, this will never end. We say, there truly will be an end where Christ will reign and set all things right. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Shows us how to live in light of this. 
Man, we're having a Bible study this morning. I'm only like a third of the way done. I'm just kidding. Maybe half. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith, that is, access by faith into this grace in which, our stand, in which we stand. Our standing before God is in grace. So look what it says. And we exalt in the hope, there's that word again, We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. To exalt means to rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of that glorious day when God sets right everything that has gone wrong. Now look what it says in verse three. Look at the way this enables us to live life with all its ups and downs. Not only this, but we also exalt, that means rejoice, rejoice in our trials and tribulations. Because we rejoice in the full and final effect of our salvation, we're able to rejoice in our current trials and tribulations. goes on to explain it. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. There's a work that God is doing in us when we're suffering. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character, hope. Look at that. Look at that circular gig there. It starts out with hope, the hope of glory. We know that life is going to involve trials and tribulations. That takes us into perseverance. As we persevere, the Holy Spirit works in us proving character. As our character is proven and refined and made more like Christ, there we have hope again. See how that works? That's the Christian life. It starts in the hope of our final and full salvation, and it comes into effect in our current trials and tribulations. And then it says in verse five, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been, past tense, poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, this future glory that is promised to us changes the way that we fight in this battle, changes the way that we suffer in our trials and tribulations. It tells us that though life is confusing and difficult, Romans 8.28 is true. God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And though life seems out of control and nonsensical, and though this pain will never end and this trial will never go away, God is actually bringing these things to a consummation in the glory of Christ. Therefore, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. We're steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that those things are not in vain in the Lord. And so here's where we end. Look what Paul said about all these things nearing his deathbed, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul. Nearing the end of his life, writes to Timothy and says this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, sorry. It's on the screen. (laughs) I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. There's that great white throne judgment. And by his appearing in his kingdom, there's that final and full effect of our salvation. Preach the word. There's those shoes of the gospel of peace. In light of the fact that Christ is going to judge the whole world and he's coming again, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, speaking about the time in which we live, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn their ears away from truth. That's why we've got to have the belt of truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, this is a charge to you, you be sober in all things. Breastplate of righteousness. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. There's those shoes again. Fulfill your ministry. Look what Paul is being able to say. We want to be able to say this on our deathbed. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's coming a glorious day for those who have put their faith in Christ when we'll stand before him and he'll take off the helmet because we already fought the good fight. Battle's over. The day of struggle is gone. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Behold, he's made all things new. He'll take off the helmet, he'll lay it aside forever and he'll put on us the crown of righteousness the righteousness of Christ in which we stand before God as holy, beloved, accepted sons and daughters. And so Jude 24 and 25 say this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, it's the power of God that keeps us, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, it's the power of God that takes us there blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. That's the end of the game. Standing in his presence, blameless with great joy. Therefore, though life has its ups and downs now, we don't give up. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand because Christ has won, is winning, and will win. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious things. We just ask that these glorious things would not be lost on us. We, We confess that we have messy lives. We confess... There's many areas of disobedience in our lives and areas where we're not fully fixing our mind on you and the things above where you're seated at the right hand of God. We're not loving your appearing, looking forward to your coming, living in light of it. And so we just ask the Holy Spirit, you convict us of those things this morning. We ask that you convict us of our sin that we might run to the throne of grace, confess our sins, Thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, show us, show me, show me my many areas of extreme self-centeredness and selfishness. I confess that I love comfort too much and my own things too much. That so often my prayer is not thy will be done, but my life reeks of my will being done. But we've read the end And in the end, you win. And you're in glory, and we with you. And you're ruling and reigning from the throne. And we will forever be with the Lord. So cause us to live for you now, since forever is for you. Teach us to do these things, Lord. Thank you that you're kind and merciful to us. Work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.